to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, where we will be looking at uh, verses 11 through 32. This is a very well-known parable about the, the prodigal sons, plural, or the lost sons, plural. Now, to set up the context for this, I want you to just listen very quickly to 15 verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the context in which Jesus now gives these three parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons. And so what I want to do is to to help you enter into the context of how the original audience would have heard the reading of this parable because Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He is speaking to those who are scandalized by Jesus' grace. And so if you want to hear this the way they would have heard what Jesus is about to say, you've you got to get something, you know, someone, something evil in your mind. Something like Hitler or Paul Pot, Auburn football. Mao Zedong, right? This embodiment of evil. And to see the first son that is talked about as if it is Hitler who has come to Jesus, as if it is Hitler that is being described as the younger son. Having that in place, let's read. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he rose, and he he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother, or the older son, was in the field. And as he came and draw near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear this parable that Jesus has presented to your people. For there are many younger brothers who are in this room who are wrestling with sin. And as a result, only wanting to see themselves as as slaves and servants and not worthy to be considered sons. And there are older brothers in this room who think they are building their resume for you in order that you may be impressed with them and and give them things that they don't have because they've earned it. Lord, help all of us to find ourselves hidden in the third son, the son who is giving the parable, whose righteous robes fully dress any and all who simply look to you by faith. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very famous and very well-known parable in the scripture. If I were to say the prodigal son, everyone knows immediately what, what I am referring to. But yet, sometimes when you have something that is so popular or that is so well-known, sometimes what can happen is we can get lost in a, in a full understanding of, of what Jesus is trying to do with this parable. Often you can see that in the fact that many will refer to this parable as the, the parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus is very clear from the very beginning of the parable, there was a father who had two sons. 
Often when we hear the word prodigal, we start to think, well, prodigal must mean, you know, you know, someone that's living in open sin. When the word prodigal just means wasteful. A prodigal is not someone that has to go away and live in obvious immorality. A prodigal is someone who is wasting the resources and the benefits that are theirs. And what we find as, as Jesus is unfolding this parable for us is there are two prodigals. There is, yes, a prodigal son who wastes the father's resources in licentious living. But there is also a prodigal who is wasting the resources of the father in legalistic living as well. Many of us are familiar with the, the younger son because for us it's, we, we tend to resonate with that younger son. We, we tend to resonate with, with what it means to receive this mercy from Jesus Christ as someone who openly acknowledges that I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. And that typically is the way that, that we interact with this parable. And it is important for us to do that because it is easy for us, even as new creatures in Jesus Christ, to slip into becoming distant and, and dysfunctional in our relationship to God because of flirting with sin, because of flirting with immorality, allowing a licentious or an openly sinful um, existence to shape and form the way that we are interacting with God and the way that we're interacting with the church. Now, typically, we don't do this openly. Typically, we are pretty good at hiding this. We're able to, to do it in private. We're able to do it when we think no one's watching or no one's listening or, you know, we go to Vegas But what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. But we can be tricked into thinking that we can live these hidden lives where we are wasting the gospel resources of Jesus Christ, that extravagant grace that God has given us in order to move us into holiness. And we can put on a good outward show, but privately be living with licentious hearts and with licentious desires and cravings. And if that is the situation, then we, are, we have hope as we see that what Jesus is wanting us to, to understand is that Jesus has come for sinners who know they're sinners. He has come to those who, who are licentious and he has come to those who live in open and obvious sin like tax collectors and, and the like of what is described here in this passage. Jesus is not put off by those things. His heart goes out to sinners who are finding themselves trapped and enslaved in that perspective. 
And so this is an encouraging and, and hopeful parable for us to, to see what, what Jesus wants us to see about how he views sinners who will repent of their sin. Now for this younger son, the, the question is, at what point does he really repent? A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, he came to himself. But, but what happened when he came to himself? He came to himself to realize, you know, this, this bites. I could have things better if I'm with my dad. So here's what I'll do. I'll put together a plan about how to approach him to see if I can be a servant in his house. But what happens? As he returns to his father, does he have to come to the father and make a case? Does the father even wait for the son to get to the house? Does he sit at the house and fold his arms? All right, let's see what he comes up with. Let's see if he has a good enough story. Let's see. Let's see if he sees himself as being the horrible person that I know he is. Maybe then, if he convinces me of how horrible he is, maybe then I'll, I'll interact with him and maybe I'll let him work for me. Is that the father's perspective? While he is a far way off, the father embarrasses the mess out of himself and he hitches up his robes and he runs out to meet him. Now, culturally, there are some huge things going on that are, that are driving this parable. A lot of times we forget that the, the, the New Testament is taking place in the, the ancient Middle East. And at that time, in fact, still today, the Middle East at that time was a honor-based or shame-based culture. The way that you would have standing in your family, the way you would have standing in, in, among your neighbors, was on the basis of how well you lived up to the community standards and expectations. If you were someone who lived up well to what everyone decided was important, then you were said to be honorable. But if you did not live up to those things, then not only did you bring shame on yourself, but you would bring shame on your family and you would bring shame on your neighbors. And there was actually a ritual that they would enact at this time where if someone brought shame on himself and his family and his neighbors, there was an actual ritual that would be enacted to publicly shame that person and send them away. Now, what many believe is happening here is the father is running out to meet the son so that he's the first one who gets to him. Because if it's one of the neighbors, what may happen is that that neighbor may get to him first and immediately start shaming him and then drawing him into the rest of the village so that they could go through that ritual act 
of publicly shaming this guy and sending him back away. Because this guy is so mired in shame. And to maintain the honor of the family and to maintain the honor of the neighborhood, we have to do this thing. We've got to shame him and send him away. When the father hitches up his robes and starts running out there, he is already engaging himself in what would have been considered an embarrassing and shameful act. Because what the father is doing, before he even gets there, before he ever says a word, is he is letting his son know, I will take your shame on me. That's my love for you. Your shame was, is my shame. And I'm going to enter that shame with you in order for me to bring you back into my house. And the son who comes stinking of the pigsty, whose plan is to kiss the feet of his father, instead receives the kisses of the father onto his pig stinking head. And the father doesn't want him back as a servant. And in recollection, by the way, the Pharisees and scribes who know the Bible so well would have known that from Isaiah 64 that God promised that when his people would repent and come back to him that he would chase out there and get to them before they actually ever uttered a word. And they would know from, from Zechariah that, that the person who comes in repentance to the Father would be stripped of his dirty clothes and he would be stripped of, of the dirt and the rags of, of, of the clothes of his unrighteousness and he would be given new clothes. He would be given a new turban and, and it would be robes of righteousness that would be a gift from the Father to his people. And they would know that the Father's love for his people would not be conditioned on how well they lived up to his expectations. Because the point of the law was to help us see we can't. So that we would cast ourselves into the merciful hands of a loving Father who shows us here the, the depths of his compassion and his joy to restore his repentant children. And just like the older brother who sees all of this and becomes disgusted by it, the scribes and the Pharisees are disgusted by the grace of Jesus Christ for repentant, scandalous sinners to the point that Jesus is dealing with the scandalous who should be shamed. He is treating them with honor and those who should be honored because they are so righteous and they never mess up and they have everything in place and he's treating them with shame. 
Jesus is flipping the social order on its head, beloved, because that's exactly what the gospel does. It flips things on its head so that sinners who have no hope in themselves can experience the hope of the loving restoration of a heavenly father who restores not on the basis of how well you repent, but who restores on the basis of how utterly complete his grace is as a gift to you. As he clothes you with the robes of the righteousness of the righteous son, Jesus Christ. And as he takes that ring, I don't know where mine went. That didn't work very well. But that ring, that signet ring that would have had the seal of the family, that seal that the father makes sure that the servant brings to his son as he clothes him and as he gives him the seal the seal, which is the promise that you are home and you are home as a son. That love and that grace and that compassion and that joy of the Father to gift these things to a son who has absolutely demerited all of it. And the question before us today as the church of Jesus Christ, is how are we going to function? Jesus tells us, or Paul tells us very clearly, that what it means for us to be in Christ is that we have been drawn into a ministry of reconciliation. That what that means for us as the church is that we are to be able to spot when we have lost sons and daughters in the congregation who were lost in licentiousness and who need uh, that assistance to, to, be, to help bring them to repentance. And if that means that we enact discipline and actually allow an unrepentant sinner to have what they want and we send them out, we do that, but we do it prayerfully and we do it graciously and we do it lovingly, hoping and praying and, and looking for a repentance so that we can take that next step and restore that being ministers of reconciliation is not about simply dropping the hammer on sinners. It's about being as zealous with grace as we are at dealing with sin. We are ambassadors of the heavenly places of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose heart is gentle and lowly and representatives of the Father in the compassion and joy that he takes in restoring repentant sinners. The test for us is if we will be obedient in all things, Paul says, obedient to discipline and obedient to restore. Or are we going to struggle with the same lostness that we see in the older brother who has entrapped himself in the same, the same trap 
of being at distance from his father with a dysfunctional relationship to his father, wasting the resources of the father because he also only values the father insofar as what he can give him. He's just nice enough not to say, I want you to act like you're dropping dead now and give me the inheritance. I'll just wait for you to actually drop dead so I get my inheritance. See, the lostness is the same. It's just one expresses it in licentiousness, the other expresses it in self-righteous legalism. Father, you owe me that inheritance, and I'll wait for you to die so I can get it. The reality is, beloved, if you're like me, one moment you're the younger brother and the next moment you're the older brother. Isn't it fun to be spiritually schizophrenic? Because the reality is, regardless of which direction we're going, our only hope is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who clothes us with his righteousness and gives us the seal that we are members of his household, not slaves. Our reformed confessions and catechisms are so clear about what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is. It is a sign and seal of the realities of the new covenant that have all been made, yes, and amen in Jesus Christ, which are given to the sinners who know their sinners and repent of their sin, the sinners who know their sinners so that they repent of their righteousness as they trust in the righteousness of Jesus. The ministry of reconciliation that we have been granted in Christ, beloved, is summed up for us here in these elements of the bread and then the cup and what it means for us to hear the invitation of the Father through the Son to come and feast at the banqueting table as those dressed in the righteousness of Christ who are looking to the hope of glory that will come in its fullness when we will enter into the full enjoyment of those things, not because we have waited well, but because we have waited in Christ. And so where are you today? Are you taking advantage of the grace of God in licentiousness? Or are you someone that gets a little upset about extravagant grace poured out on sinners. What I hope is that as a people we are learning to understand ourselves in Christ more and more and more so that we can look at one another in that same lens of Christ as well. So that rather than being judgmental and upset about our brothers and sisters, we know how to pray for them. And we know how to come alongside them and love on them. And we know how to encourage them in repentance. 
and we know how to encourage them to let go of their own righteousness and trust in Christ's. You, in Christ, are an ambassador of the Father's joy and compassion in restoring repentant sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need your assistance precisely because it's not easy for us to serve as ambassadors of grace. We love to serve as ambassadors of grace when it comes to ourselves, but so often, Lord, when we've been hurt by somebody, when we've been hurt by by someone who has openly lived in sin and who has walked away from, from your grace, who has walked away from the fellowship of the church. It is so easy for us, Lord, as Paul said, to be hurt by that. And in that pain, it can be so easy to want to see vengeance and to want to see pain and to want to see that person pay rather than to open ourselves to the vulnerability of praying for repentance and looking for a changed heart so that we can run to them and let them know that in Christ they are forgiven, that they have a place in your church and they do not have to pay for what they did. They have to trust in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to do what is so difficult for us to do. And help us to learn to to live in the celebration that you and the angels enjoy when a repentant sinner returns to you. Father, may this capture the imaginations of our faith so that we would give ourselves to the ministry of reconciliation. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.